colleagues, I would like to uh, welcome you, a very warm welcome to what is a, a wonderful day today, a very long but very challenging and important day on, on the challenges and opportunities of the EU digital single market. We have a very full agenda here, so I would like to very quickly pass the word to my colleague. Um, just to inform you about the, the motivation here is very much the, 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 uh, the strategy that was laid out by the European Commission on the digital single market. And we have organized the program around the latest evaluation that the Commission did about a year ago. Uh, and therefore, we have four sessions. We will uh, be looking backwards and see what we have achieved so far. And then we will be talking some of the challenges of the things that are lay ahead of us. Uh, and, and later this afternoon, we're also welcoming the, uh, the Vice President of the European Commission, Andrew Sansev, who will share his thoughts uh, uh, on this issue. So we do hope that you will be staying for us. So without, that, without further ado, I would like to pass the, the floor to the Chair, to, uh, to, my, um, to my colleague, Joros, uh, to start the session. Joros, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maria. Welcome all. Uh, so um, it is a multi-session uh, uh, day, and... Uh, uh, to evaluate different aspects of DSM. Of course, DSM initiatives are multi-dimensional. Uh, so uh, in this first session, we'll focus on uh, digital platforms. Uh, we'll discuss about uh, uh, the economics of digital platforms, how they work, what are the challenges, uh, uh, what are uh, the policies uh, uh, that are in place. So we should not forget that uh, uh, according to the digital single market uh, agenda and the midterm review, uh, ensuring um, a fair and innovation-friendly platform economy is one of the major priorities. So what do we mean by this term and how the DSM agenda have moved to that direction is something that we will discuss uh, with uh, a panel of experts that I'm very happy to have uh, with me. Um, in alphabetical order, we have uh, Adina Kleisi, director and head of the Brussels office at Copenhagen Economics. Welcome, Adina. Uh, we have uh, Siada uh, El Ramli, who is the director general uh, at EDIMA. Uh, the uh, organization that represent uh, digital platforms. Welcome, Siada. Uh, then we have uh, Thomas uh, Kramler, the head of the Digital Single Market Task Force at the European Commission at Digicom. And we are also very happy to have uh, Patrick Legro, professor at Université Libre de Bruxelles. Uh, Patrick, welcome. Um, so without uh, further ado, I will uh, give the floor to the speakers. We will start with Patrick, who will give us uh, a, an academic perspective on the economic of digital platforms. Patrick, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. So yeah, my role is basically to give you some idea of what the literature is telling us. And obviously, it's a big subject. So I will focus on, on two questions related to the use of data by platforms. This seems pretty actual. And the cost and benefit of regulation. Um, so let me make a, a first remark. So in the world of platforms, I think there are two important assets that have always been there for firms, but that are even more important for platforms. And these two assets are trust and big data, okay? So trust is what consumers expect to get from a platform. They may expect to get good service. They may expect sellers to have good reputation and to deliver. Sellers may expect buyers of the platform to pay. And trust is also important because you may want, if you have privacy issues, you may want to make sure that the platform respects these privacy issues. So that's the first thing. Now big data, why is big data important? Because big data may be actually used by platforms to create trust, right? If you want to, if you want to certify the reputation of a seller, uh, it's important to look at, at uh, past transactions. It's often important also, like they have done at, uh, at uh, 
at uh, Google to look at uh, messages that are exchanged between sellers and buyers that gives you an idea of actually complaints and to have a more precise uh, evaluation of the quality of the seller than simply rankings that we know can be manipulated, right? So, so trust and big data, trust your own privacy, let's say big data, you want to protect consumers making sure that they have, they have a good service. And the problem for economists is that, you know, you won't be surprised, is that the two things may clash with each other, okay? So you cannot use big data and at the same time necessarily uh, enhance the privacy of the, of, of the consumers. And it is this tension between using, using data in order to provide services that will also have side effects like the possibility of price discrimination, the possibility to, to exclude uh, rivals because they don't have access to the same data than you have and therefore cannot provide the same service to consumers. Or also the fact that use of data and the sharing of information, that may be good because sharing of information may solve some you know, uh, imperfect information uh, in the market. All of that conflict creates a very interesting and complicated trade-offs, uh, both for economists, but also for regulation. So obviously in 10 minutes, I don't have much time to, to do much, uh, but let me give you some, some basic idea of trade-offs. So this idea of privacy, goes back a long time ago to the 70s, actually, and the first papers are Ischleifer and Posner and Stiegler, uh, who show two things. Uh, Ischleifer shows that actually you have excessive investment in data gathering. So let's say platforms invest too much in trying to keep track of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of consumer data. At the time, obviously, platforms were not present, but the issue of privacy was important. And Posner uh, makes the same point that priv uh, privacy, uh, very opposite point, that privacy may be inefficient in a world where you have imperfect information because it is useful from the market point of view to have a better estimate of the characteristics of agents. Um, and then Varian and Murphy in the beginning of the 2000s uh, shows that actually privacy is a complicated issue because on one side, Consumers may value privacy. You don't want to know, you don't want sellers to know how much you are willing to pay for a type of good. But on the other side, they may value lack of privacy. They may value the fact that sellers share their characteristics. Why? Because that will enable them to search faster uh, for goods and to have better offerings from, from sellers. So you have a tension also among consumers what type of privacy you want. Uh, Murphy, Dogerty, and Ragenum. Uh, shows that agents may care about, uh, about reputation, and in this situation, uh, privacy may be a, a good thing because think of somebody checking in a drug rehab center. Uh, if there is uh, privacy, no publicity, he or she will do it. If there is not, she may, he or she may not want to do it. So things are a little complicated. So the theory can go this way. So what I'll try to give you here is some sense of what we know empirically. And a good, a good, uh, a good sandbox to think of that is uh, literature on information sharing on credit markets. Okay, so the theory uh, says you have a lot of adverse selection, information sharing in the market. So let's say a bank sharing information about credit performance of a consumer with other banks may be good because it eliminates some part of adverse selection. And what is the benefit for consumers is that you have better lending. Um, and you increase lending to safer consumers and you decrease also the default rate, which is good. 
Empirically, empirically, you have two types of works that have tried to identify this adverse selection effect. One using cross-country uh, cross data, and another one using uh, macro data. And there seems to be indications that indeed, uh, when, you have, um, when you have this type of sharing, you, have, you tend to have better performance of the credit market in terms of lower default rate and, and, and more lending to, 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 to consumers. Um, in the US, there is a very interesting uh, law. This is the gram leash bailey law, GLBA, that allow financial institutions to share, sell, and trade, or give non-public personal information about their consumers. So the law initially was designed with an opt-out clause. That is to say, consumers were able to say, I don't, um, I want to opt out of this thing, so I want privacy. And the criticism for this law was that um, was that consumers didn't use the opt-out law, so therefore they weren't really protected. So what happened is that some, uh, in some states, in some counties uh, in California, in the San Francisco, Oakland, Fremont um, area, um, the local authority shifted from the opt-out clause to an opt-in. That is to say, you need prior authorization by the consumers before sharing information. And this provides a very nice natural experiment that has been used by, um, uh, by in a paper called Screening Incentives and Privacy Protection in Financial Markets by Kim and Wagman. And they compare basically counties where you have the opt-in, so strong protection, versus, versus uh, counties where you have low protection. Okay, and consistent with, with basically this, this uh, a model where banks endogenously screen. And the idea is that when they screen, the value of information they have is amplified by their ability to share information with other banks who are willing to buy for the result of the screening. So you have a type of multiplier effect to the sharing technology. And they show that indeed, consistent with the model prediction, then your rates for home-based um, loans decrease in countries where opt-in privacy was uh, in enacted because opt-in led to less possibility of sharing, and therefore a detrimental effect on this endogenous screening possibility. So you see the effects can be very complex, not only when you look at different um, benefits of privacy, but when you look also at the endogenous response of firms in response to that, the performance of what firms will do to, to leverage privacy or not. So the literature also shows that when you think of regulation, uh, platforms may self-regulate because if you don't give privacy, it may, it may, and you face uh, uh, strategic consumers, it may, um, it may um, bite you back because consumers can adapt. A very simple adaptation is that uh, you may not want to transact today in order to tomorrow to benefit from a low price that the platform will give to new customers. Well, if you know that if you transact today, you will have an history, and if the, there is tracking of your characteristic by the platform, tomorrow you'll face a high prices. So this type of papers has been developed by Armstrong, Zoo, and other people. Um, uh, so, so it's complicated, I would say, but at the end of the day, the opt-out opt-in is an interesting, very simple regulatory tool that has been used now in the US and in Europe. Opt-in is basically used. And, and what do we know about that? So we, we don't know a lot. But there are two types, of, um, two types of empirical work. So the one I know in Europe is a, a paper by Goldfarg and Tucker. And they look at the consequences of the EU privacy directive. And they show that the advertising effectiveness decreased significantly. That's not very surprising, because after all, if 
you cannot track consumers, or if consumers' uh, characteristics are more protected, uh, um, advertising will be less efficient in terms of targeting and this type of thing. So why does it matter, uh, that advertising? Because for many platforms like uh, Facebook uh, uh, and, and, uh, and other platforms where the business model basically relies on advertising, uh, there may be a non-trivial effect of basically this type of, um, of, uh, of decreased effectiveness of advertising and the revenues of the platform. And that will feed back also potentially in the ability to provide services. In the US, uh, there is a paper by Miller and Tucker looking at hospitals and showing there that the release of information, patient information to the hospital significantly reduce the adoption of electronic medical records. Um, so, 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 okay. Okay, so that's, I have above my 10 minutes. So to summarize very quickly, um, um, the theory says basically that um, you have to be a little careful what type of privacy you want to protect and what type of data you want, uh, you want to use and that the, you have a lot of self-regulation and that also a regulation based on opt-in versus opt-out may lead to actually non-trivial trade-offs depending upon uh, the type of platform you are regulating. But I will stop here and, and can, can explain later. Thank you very much, Patrick. I think it was uh, very interesting uh, uh, to see. Um, and thanks also for um, um, uh, summarizing also some academic research on the topic. Uh, uh, I realize that I have so much to read, to read after uh, this presentation. But uh, it is very interesting to, uh, to see the different trade-offs that uh, they are involved. Uh, uh, keeping in mind that data can provide some information that can help um, uh, markets to operate in a more efficient way and the adverse selection paradigm is uh, an indicative of that. Uh, we should keep in mind that there are different types of privacy uh, and uh, the fact that uh, restricting uh, data could not only be considered as something that it is um, good for privacy reasons, but may have uh, some economic effects in the transactions given the, fa the, the fact that we need some information flow in to eliminate asymmetric information. Um, so um, I think it was um, a, a good start uh, and to keep, uh, and we should keep these um, uh, points in mind for the rest of the discussion. I turn now to Adina for her introductory uh, uh, talk. Thank you, Bruno, and thank you, Bruegel, for inviting me here. It's a um, it's really nice pleasure and uh, an honor to share the panel with uh, uh, my co-panelists. Um, just uh, yeah, for the 10 minutes I have, I thought to reply to the, the question of the session, how we ensure a fair and innovative friendly platform economy by just mentioning two, two points. Uh, first of them is what, in my opinion, are the tools to ensure this uh, friendly platform economy? And the second one is what I have seen that has been done so far in Europe. As regards the tools, the tools that we have, um, I'm coming from the competition background. Um, I think we have two major uh, fields where we can act. Uh, in first is the competition policy and then it's the regulation, both horizontal regulation and uh, also more vertical sector specific regulation. As regards competition policy, this is an ex-post instrument, we know, but a good, in my opinion, a good competition enforcement can also act as a very good deterrent uh, if it ensures um, 
a clear uh, clear principles in past cases companies know what are the how competition enforcers will uh, act and then i think it's uh, as a it can act as a deterrent in terms of regulation, um, I'm very happy that Patrick has mentioned the self-regulation of the platforms. I'll mention it a bit uh, later, but I just want to mention not to forget. But in terms of, of, of uh, regulation, I think um, regulation has to be proportionate um, in the sense that it has to clearly uh, define either a market failure or a very clear social objective that it responds to, and it shouldn't go beyond, it shouldn't go uh, to respond to the pressure of some incumbent firms that have, has, have been there and cannot cope with this disruptive um, innovation economy. So I think that's the purpose of the regulators and that's what they should take care of. And um, I very much welcome the initiative of the Commission, of uh, the, the digital single market process, because I think that's in this way the Commission can uh, get a lot of information from the market in order to, to take hopefully good decisions on how to ensure the regulatory framework. Um, we have seen um, in the, the recent debate um, around platform has been very much along, uh, around the network effects and the, the danger that uh, the, the, the presence of network effects and the way platforms enjoy these will make them become big and remain big forever. The winner takes it all, what we've heard. Uh, I recently read, um, some time ago I read the book by Evans and Schmalensi, the matchmaker's book, and I recently read some uh, articles, subsequent articles inspired by that book. And I very much like their counterexamples and their how they debunk a bit the myth of platforms, uh, of network effects making platforms big. And um, yeah, so they, they, they say that there is a bias in looking at the winners and seeing how some platforms became big thanks to network effects. But I think they have good points there. One, they have um, some counterexamples of, um, they say, in the same way as, as network effects um, have an expansion effect, they can, also, um, they can also make platform decline. Consumers enjoy having their friends on the platform, uh, so platforms increase exponentially with, thanks to the network effects. But in the same way, if people change their minds or something happened and start leaving the platform, this can attract other customers to leave the platform and then, um, then these platforms decline. They give lots of examples such as AOL or Yahoo, for example, or also Blue, uh, uh, Blackberries and the many, many big, uh, big firms, big platforms that have declined. They haven't, they reached, uh, they became big or the biggest in the market, but they have also declined. So. We should be careful, I mean, not to be biased and looking at this only at winners, because network effects can also go the other way around. Um, another thing, important thing to look at, uh, that not all platforms enjoy network effects to the same extent. Social, uh, social, um, social networks have a, have a completely different models uh, from other platforms that are work more as intermediaries. In social networks, the network effects are very strong, whereas in other platforms such as Amazon, or which is mainly a retailer, or Uber that, um, that um, intermediates between demand and supply, and where platforms charge both sides of the market, network effects, in my opinion, play um, um, 
less important role than in social platforms, uh, in social uh, media platforms, where one side of the market subsidizes the, other, the, the presence of, of uh, consumers on the other side of the market. So we should very carefully look at these different types of platforms because uh, not, 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 they all have different dynamics. And this uh, takes me to my second point, that what has been done so far. Um, I think the Commission, the European Commission, has gone very uh, far. Both uh, DG Competition and uh, the regulatory body of the Commission. As I said at the beginning, the digital single market is, uh, I think it's a very ambitious and nice initiative. It's good to have, uh, to, to have targets, uh, ambitious targets. Uh, I think Commission has done a great job in informing itself and it's in the process of informing itself both through the e-commerce sector inquiry and also through various uh, communications, gathering information, understanding how this platform works. Um, I, I read again recently the communication on online platforms published by the Commission. I think it's um, great how they tried to find the typology. There was there are five types of platforms defined there and uh, with a bit of a description of how they work, what their business models are. I think it's very informative to see that they are not all the same. There are different, very different business models between uh, uh, yes, people like Amazon retailers or social networks or um, um, yeah, they have find, uh, you can read it, five, five types. Um, now, this is to praise the Commission. Now, looking at the figures, I think uh, I see that Europe is still lagging behind. Um, in this communication for platforms, I found a nice picture showing how many platforms there are now in Europe as compared to the rest of the world. And the figures that I saw there, it's uh, that Europe has only 15% of platforms in number of platforms, and only they represent only 4% in value. So it's not that much yet, but um, uh, there are also some, some nice success stories. I like to talk about Spotify. Actually, Spotify is, in other statistics I read, the, the, the only European company in the top 25 platforms in the world. But I think Spotify um, is a good example of a success story and how you can make it in a world where Apple, through iTunes, had uh, millions of millions of clients had billions of data points. We are talking now about this big data, how big data acts as a barrier to entry. I think Spotify made it to enter with an original idea in this um, music market, and now it's the biggest uh, music provider in, in the world. So I, I think that's, that's a good European example, but it's one in 25 as far as I read. So I think that's the side of the story that is not yet so, so brilliant. But uh, yes, that's what I wanted to say. Thank you, Bert. Thank you very much, uh, Dina. It was um, interesting to see this analysis on uh, network effects and to what extent it can be a potential risk. Uh, of course, as you said, it depends on the business model and the type of activity that you have online, to what extent uh, uh, this works. Uh, you also mentioned some examples of uh, companies that uh, they were very successful in the past, but their success declined, uh, and we need to consider whether the network effects uh, are so much determinant and uh, are there uh, uh, create problems uh, uh, according to that uh, observation. Um, but uh, also, it was nice uh, to have this perspective on 
successful uh, platforms in Europe uh, that manage to grow and uh, be able to serve uh, um, a variety, uh, a wide range of markets. And the Spotify is a good example. The question then is why you don't have uh, more European uh, platforms in, in this direction. Um, so um, I will uh, turn now to Siada, uh, and I would like to ask her um, how does she uh, evaluate the European environment for digital platforms? Uh, what are uh, the main issues, uh, the main uh, strong points of EU, and uh, what are her uh, remarks uh, on the European Commission's approach on this field? Thank you, Jorgos. Um, so what I'm hoping to present this morning to you is not just where we are today, but the evolution of the platform-focused regulation um, in the last few years, and also to see where we're going from here. So one thing that I'd like to point out, and that will be uh, just to pick up on the last point that Adina made with regards to European platforms, we see a great example in Spotify, definitely. But I think the real success story of the platform story in Europe is not so much have we had the next Google or the next Facebook coming out of Europe, no. It's what kind of impact has it had on the European economy. And if you look at what we've had for decades as a major issue in Europe is scalability for European industry, getting the market share that they need to be able to grow. And we've seen that the platforms have created, for the first time, an environment where small companies in Europe have been able to access markets that they've never been able to access before. Um, and that, I would say, is actually the real success story. When you see a Polish folklore uh, dress company that used to only reach out to 20 kilometers away from where their, their manufacturing hub is, now selling across-border across in Europe. Um, that's a success story. They've been able to reach the European audience at large. So, taking a step back on the regulatory side, I think we've, we, this mandate of the Commission started with the DSM strategy, um, the intention of creating the DSM, which I think, as Adina also mentioned, is very ambitious um, for this mandate. I would say for the next mandate, I would hope that the DSM would become just the single market story, because frankly, it's become digital. Um, but, sadly, the rollout of the DSM strategy is not as uh, big of a success story as the initial intention. We've seen that the uh, Commission definitely, and I don't want to paint with the same brush across all the parts of the Commission, because I think some of the initiatives were very strong, but at times um, the intentions seem to have lost their course. And by that I'll, I'll explain it a little bit as my presentation goes forward. But um, we'll see that some of the intentions where there was in 2015, for example, 14 and 15, there was an intention to look at platform regulation as a package. And there was feedback from the member states, from other stakeholders, that maybe it was premature at the time. I'm not saying it's premature right now. I'm saying that that was where, the situa where, where, where we started out with in 2015. What happened since then? We've got lots of pressure points that have made the the platform's increasingly more interesting as a focal point. We've got societal pressures of terrorist groups that are very tech-savvy, trying to get their, their position out and their messaging out. We have got elections in some of the major state, member states, where, obviously, uh, we all know that politicians need to have an electoral campaign, and having a common enemy is very advantageous. Um, we've got concerns with regards to data, 
uh, use. We have got um, economic uh, issues where you need to have an economic agenda for Europe to continue growing. And somehow that has all translated back to the focal point on platforms. It's a nice inclusive uh, sector to talk about, but so divergent in terms of what kind of platforms you actually have. You can't really con um, compare a search facility to a social network or to a travel and um, platform. They're all different in nature, and I think that that's what makes the platform debate so, so interesting, but also so difficult to deal with. Um, DG Competition has done a sector inquiry, which frankly, I must commend them on the fact that they remain very focused on the objective at hand. EDEMA does not deal with competition policy, luckily, so I don't have to go into the details of the sector inquiry, but I know that it remained very focused, evidence-based and focused, which is where, to my point of it, the DSM strategy rollout lost its course at times, is where we have a big issue. Because evidence-based, with all the, the, the pressure points that I mentioned, the evidence base um, of policymaking seems to have gone amiss in the DSM strategy rollout. We see that um, we've got, actually this week, the, 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 there will be announcements on fair business-to-business uh, -business relationships uh, um, proposal for platforms that's going to come out. The evidence base, and I do have some of the feedback that was given to the Commission in terms of quant uh, quant uh, quantifiable feedback through their research, is minimal, frankly questionable whether it would be strong enough on, a, on the scale of the platforms to call it as real concern areas, yet there's a political will to do regulation in that area. So this balance between the political will to address, address supposed concerns and the evidence base that's actually being collected is very questionable at times. Um, we've got that in, BT, in P2B. We have got it in some of the ways that copyright is being dealt with at the moment. If you look at the copyright concerns, there, I think, actually, if, if you ask me, the, co the copyright proposal that we have in front of us that we've been working on for two years now, it lacks total ambition to be um, a copyright framework for the digital age. What it does is trying to somehow force an old model of copyright regulation onto, a, onto new businesses and it just won't fit. So we're going to end up in very long litigation trying to figure out how that's going to work. Similarly, consumer law. Um, there we've got a new deal for consumers and that's, that brings up one thing actually where I think just because you've got new business models doesn't mean that you need to have new regulation. You can also make sure that your enforcement is done well enough to include the new business models in the enforcement of the regulation that's at hand. And that's not always done. Um, one concern as well is contradictory um, legislation. So whereas in, in, the fairness, in the proposal that's coming out this week on P2B, we see that obviously we're trying to create a fairer environment for business partners for platforms, um, of platforms in their dealings with the platforms because of the scale issue and how big the platforms are. 
But at the same time, you need to bear in mind who the end consumer is and what the regulations are in terms of your responsibility to them from data protection perspective, from a consumer law perspective. And those, frankly, and if you look at both, uh, both proposals at this stage, they are at, at times contradictory. So it sounds like I'm whinging a lot. Um, so I want to try and be a little bit more um, hopeful, but at the same time think about what needs to happen. We, um, for one, I think we need to understand what a platform is. And at the moment, when we think of it, we think of four or five companies that everybody knows that are household names. Frankly, a platform can be so much more. Um, even in today's world, you could consider a car a platform. Uh, yet we don't think of that when we think of a regulatory uh, outlook in terms of dealing with it. So how do we try and bring all of this together? I think we need to go back to the core of it, which is the technology, the functionality, and then going back to an evidence base, because what, what has happened is the political will has overtaken the, um, the actual real need for regulation. We're not shying away from regulation. If regulation is needed, that's fine. We see that there have been major success stories in terms of self-regulation and co-regulation on various issues be it um, the dealing with hate speech and terrorist material, the, what, what the Brits call the high threshold content, or be it in dealing with counterfeiting, there are success stories there. It's a cumbersome um, mechanism to get off the ground because you have to get all the stakeholders around the table, but that is going to be, in time, probably the most effective way to deal with issues because it's pragmatic, it's quicker than legislation, and it deals with all of the stakeholders. So is it time at this stage, and I'm going to leave you with this open question, I'm happy to debate it further with you, but is it time to look at um, legislation which could be over-prescriptive and limiting in terms of dealing with the reality of today and therefore not being relevant by the time it hits the ground? Or is it time to actually say, okay, maybe we won't think of just the short-term political uh, wins at large, but we'll think more of innovation for Europe and what it means, and we will try to create some kind of governance structure that will bring all of the uh, stakeholders in the platform economy, because they're not just the platforms, it's everybody, including the consumers, bring them around the table and talk about the issues that are at hand as they're developing to be able to find solutions. And I'll leave you with that, and I'm happy to debate it further. Thank you very much, uh, Siad. I think um, it was uh, a very structured uh, talk with uh, a lot of uh, points that worth being mentioned. Uh, the st starting from your initial remark, my question is whether we need uh, uh, a, a framework, uh, an environment where uh, EU platform uh, should grow or the objective is to uh, look uh, at an environment where uh, platforms in general have a greater impact, a positive impact on our economy. Um, it was, uh, as Adina mentioned before, you mentioned that uh, different platforms have a different business model and uh, different, uh, therefore, it is um, not a proper way to put them all in one group uh, uh, when we are talking about specific rules that should apply. Um, and you call for an evidence-based uh, evidence uh, approach. My question here is whether 
we have access to data for this evidence-based uh, approach. And uh, this is general questions for the discussion afterwards. Uh, and uh, whether uh, the platforms themselves uh, should um, be more uh, inclined to provide data for this evidence-based approach. Um, however, you were very critical uh, on the commission approach. And uh, you mentioned about the consumer law, you mentioned about um, uh, the copyright, um, and you uh, also said that uh, we cannot apply all tools for new markets. So I'm looking forward for Thomas' reactions on these points. Yes, don't expect too much. Obviously, I'm coming from uh, DG Competition, so I'll focus on the interplay between competition law and uh, platform regulation. Specifically, what can competition law contribute to the debate uh, are there limits um, of competition law enforcement? I think there are. And uh, what uh, should be regulated, or is there a need for, for regulation? But before doing that, uh, I think we should uh, take a step back and define a bit what is the issue, actually. What are we talking about uh, uh, generally? Uh, talking about facts-based uh, approach, you know that the Commission carried out this large-scale uh, sector inquiry into e-commerce um, uh, last year. What we found is basically that in e-commerce uh, specifically, uh, you have enormous growth rates, 10 to 20 percent in, in various member states, but you also have the platformization, if I may call it uh, that way, of e-commerce markets. That means uh, that uh, big players in e-commerce uh, are taking a lot, uh, a great uh, junk uh, of the market, which is in and of itself uh, not a bad thing. So big is certainly not bad uh, in, in, our, in our view, uh, but uh, it's a fact of uh, markets uh, which one uh, has to analyze. That has obviously also positive effects on the digital single market, as you rightly said. Uh, it is uh, these platforms which help uh, small companies uh, to sell cross-border, small companies to set up businesses which enable them to do things uh, which on their own they would have never been able to do. So there's a positive aspect, especially for the digital single market, uh, of the platformization of uh, e-commerce. But on the other hand, you also have companies uh, that, for instance, uh, a recent figure, have 40, 46% of, of uh, online commerce is done by one uh, company in, in Germany. 90% of searches uh, in, in the European Union uh, are done through one company. I mean, that's figures, uh, that's market realities. That's something uh, one does have to look into when we talk about uh, platform markets. Uh, so first question probably before we go into the concerns about platforms and what makes platforms different from other markets or could make platform markets different, what is a platform? I heard uh, a lot of people talk about Spotify. For me, Spotify is not a platform. Spotify is a distributor of music, a very classical distributor. I don't see any difference uh, between uh, Deleuze and... I see a difference between Deleuze and Spotify, but in the, in, the, in the distribution model, it is a distributor of music that gets its input uh, from the music majors and then sells it on uh, to uh, its clients. It's not really a specific business model that would distinguish it from anybody else, but there are other platforms uh, like online marketplaces, uh, which uh, run a different uh, business model. They are an intermediary between, uh, on the one hand, the consumer side, on the other hand, the merchant side. So there's different business models out in, in the platform world. And when one talks about platforms, I think it's wise not to put all of them in the same uh, box or same basket, because uh, many different platforms run different uh, business models. Uh, and it's wise to look into the different business models uh, before uh, coming to any uh, conclusion. So what makes platform business models or platform markets different uh, from other markets. Uh, 
and is uh, therefore should we be a bit more concerned uh, when looking at platform markets than we should uh, or we are generally when uh, looking at other markets. On the one hand, you have uh, the enormous uh, innovation ca capacity you see in platform markets, the uh, enormous uh, changes, the rapid uh, changes in the market, but then on the other hand, uh, it's not as rapid as one uh, might think. If you think about platforms in the past, uh, you have innovation cycles which tend to be quite long. Think about, um, for instance, the IBM mainframe. It's survived 30 years. It's still around. Uh, many companies still rely on it. Uh, the Microsoft PC operating system, it's still around. Many companies, uh, especially uh, businesses, still rely on it. It's not a platform that has been displaced uh, within uh, 30 years. So one needs to be also a bit careful to always talk about the, the radical changes, the quick market changes, uh, because some uh, companies tend to stay around uh, with uh, huge market shares uh, for a long time. So markets are not the same. Markets differ and uh, platforms differ and, and their market position uh, might differ. So you have the, the innovation, the rapid changes, but on the other hand, you have the first mover advantages. The first movers in these markets uh, tend uh, to be the winners, which is not as such a bad thing, but it's a fact of life that one has to take into account when dealing with platform markets. You have the network effects. Uh, obviously, uh, we're not so much concerned about the losers, as um, Adina said. We're concerned more about those companies that gain market power uh, through the network effects, and there are some examples uh, where you can see that in, in the recent uh, Google decision that the Commission adopted. Uh, it was Oh, it is to be presented as one example where, where network effects actually play the role in favor of, uh, of uh, the incumbent company. Uh, you have the scale advantage of platforms, and there we come back to the European debate. Obviously, that's a big issue in, in Europe, uh, that uh, companies in, in other markets can scale up uh, quicker than they can here because of the languages used, for instance. Um, so companies from outside Europe have the scale advantage in their market, which they can then use uh, here in order to uh, bring their business uh, to here. So that's an issue uh, that one uh, has uh, to think about. You have the data advantage, and can talk about that in, in a minute. Is it really such a big advantage? Also depends on, uh, on the platform. You have an incentive uh, of platforms to leverage uh, from one market where they're already big into another market where they're not so big uh, in order to uh, grow. That might be a problem, and it has been a problem, and has been identified as a problem in, in Google, in, in, the, in the Google decision by, by the Commission, where one company leverages the market power it has in one market in order to grow uh, unfairly, as we said, uh, in another market. So all of this to say uh, the platform markets are not equal, uh, some are more equal, and one has to look uh, very specifically at the, at the features of the market, and we have some good examples from competition law enforcement where we've seen the differences in markets. Uh, in the merger, for instance, uh, that the Commission looked into between Microsoft and Skype, uh, where the two companies, the merged companies, had more than 90% market share on the relevant market, the Commission was not concerned uh, because many people were multi-homing um, in, in the relevant uh, areas, so they were using different platforms, and there was no lock-in effect. In other markets, uh, such as the Google um, search uh, case, uh, the Commission was more concerned because there was not so much uh, multi-homing. There was only one uh, company that, um, uh, that could provide uh, the relevant service. So you need to look into many features. For instance, pre-installation. We're all very lazy. So whatever is pre-installed on our on our platform is, is very hard to overcome. Uh, so you have, an, you have an advantage if, as a platform, you can already pre-install all of your products uh, um, and, and present them to users, and others have to like fight for the 
uh, for the eyeballs. We all talk about attention markets uh, nowadays, so it's, it, it's the fight for the eyeballs that, that, cares more, um, that, that drives many platform markets. So this is all to say that one has to be careful in, in the assessment uh, of uh, market power, in the assessment of, of platform markets, not to throw everything into one uh, box uh, because markets uh, might differ. And that's why competition law enforcement actually is a, is a very useful tool when dealing with platform markets because it's exactly the advantage of competition law enforcement to be able to cater for the differences in markets, to cater for the different uh, market um, uh, circumstances. When it comes to data, the same uh, again. It, not every data market is the same. Uh, are data substitutable? Uh, are not every set of data is valuable. Uh, you, you can differentiate uh, different categories of data. Sometimes data are used kind of as the currency, as, as a payment method. Sometimes there's, uh, there can be a competition on the quality of, uh, of a product and on the basis of privacy. Uh, on the other hand, it's not sure that consumers value this privacy so much that it actually plays a role in the competitive uh, assessment. This needs, to be, this needs to be taken into account uh, in, in specific cases. Sometimes data are an asset, sometimes they're just an output. There's all sorts of, uh, I don't want to say complications, but interesting features of markets uh, that one uh, needs to take into account. Again, that's why competition law enforcement uh, is an interesting uh, avenue. But competition law enforcement can certainly not deal with everything. There are limits to what uh, one can do under competition uh, law enforcement because it's very much market uh, specific. It's very much driven by the evidence and by the facts. But there may be general problems um, out there in the market where competition law enforcement is probably not the right tool to solve them. Uh, and uh, if you talk about unfair trading practices, many member states have rules um, against unfair trading practices specifically for that reason, because there's a general perception that some practices in the market are perceived unfair, even if they're undertaken by a non-dominant company, for instance, where competition law uh, finds its limits. And that's what the Commission is looking into now, whether there's some general problems in the market where competition law needs to be complemented uh, by further regulation, and, and whether this uh, makes sense. And the Commission uh, will very shortly propose uh, um, something in this uh, direction. But this is just to say, uh, in order to grasp the wealth of issues with platform markets, I think many different tools have to be uh, deployed. One could be the facts-intensive, uh, fact-specific competition law enforcement tool. But on the other hand, for some issues, uh, regulation might actually be the right thing because competition law enforcement cannot uh, practically deal uh, with the mass of the issue uh, and therefore the right tool needs to be deployed uh, for the right problem. Thank you very much, uh, Thomas. I think you described uh, in um, a very uh, comprehensive way um, some uh, competition issues that can arise uh, from the operation of uh, online platforms. Um, of course, we should keep in mind is that the, in the cases um, like the Google line you mentioned, uh, we had also the element of dominant position. The question is what happens if we don't have dominance in the market? And I will be happy now that we are moving to the discussion to have some comments on that. Um, so um, I would like to turn back to Patrick. Um, he, uh, he, in the end of his uh, talk, he mentioned uh, some about the, re uh, the regulatory approach, and he also mentioned uh, self-regulation. I guess um, uh, 
the mechanism that self-regulation applies is different when you are talking about privacy issues, which is uh, something related to the economics of trust. Uh, I want my company uh, to be trusted and in this way uh, to attract consumers and different when we will go to talk about competition issues and uh, platform competition in general. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, whether in the you, you see this difference in incentives to self-regulate between the two cases. And um, uh, in the privacy um, uh, sector, if you see that the current initiatives are sufficient so that uh, self-regulation um, is uh, an important uh, um, is important uh, in platforms, and you see it as um, uh, sufficient to adequate uh, concerns. And if we go to the competition issues that um, uh, Thomas mentioned, where, where should we draw the line between competition policy and regulation? How much time do I have? <laughs> uh, well, I think there are two issues. Obviously, uh, when we talk about privacy, I talked about sharing, voluntary sharing of information between platforms, but the recent cases um, show that there is a big scope for security of information, right? Uh, so clearly at this level, regulation should make, uh, this is part of the trust, right? You trust that whatever the implicit contract you have with the platform, that your information will not be used illegally by other parties. So regulation, I think, has a big scope here. Now, the relationship between self-regulation and formal regulation is, is sort of interesting and complicated because, for instance, if you think of the opt-in clause in regulation, okay, there is some work in, in uh, suggesting that actually the opt-in clause may favor large networks rather than small networks. And why is that so? Because opt-in create basically an implicit cost for the platforms. And it creates an even bigger cost if the small platforms also don't offer as many services as the big platforms. So this is going back to the idea of big platforms, one, uh, one service for many eyeballs, basically. Uh, and therefore, you could have actually this type of regulation may backfire, giving actually, you know, changing the balance in the market among platforms and give an, uh, an advantage to in big incumbents. And therefore, it's not what you want to do. So you have to be careful uh, in, in using this type of tools. And if self-regulation is more like a market base, then maybe it will be. But we don't know enough, both theoretically and empirically, to, to draw a line at this level. Um, so your question was about two types of platforms. If I, can, can you repeat quickly? Yeah. So uh, the question is um, uh, the incentives for self-regulation in in issues like security, uh, privacy, probably are different uh, for uh, self-regulation related of keeping uh, some uh, competition, um, uh, some competition in the market uh, from the other platforms. So the incentives are different. Yeah, 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 sure, definitely different. And and uh, I mean, for competition policies, the big issue for data is obviously the the fear of price discrimination. Um, what I read suggests that there is not really a use of this data for customer personalized price discrimination, meaning that you know, uh, Google or, or Amazon knows your characteristics and will sell you a product at a different price, but there may be a significant effect on targeting. So there is this beautiful example of Orbitz, you know, Orbitz, the, the, the intermediary for hotels. They have identified in 2012 that actually Mac users tend to pay more for hotels, 30% more for hotels than Windows users. And so, yeah, 
<laughs> so what happened is that actually they, they, they showed to Mac users, you know, more expensive hotels or this type of thing. So this is called nudging, you know. So it's, more, it's not price discrimination per se, but it's basically uh, you change the set of products that consumers may see. So is that good, is that bad? It's good because if you like expensive hotels, it's good because you don't need to search. It may be bad because you don't have the, alternate, the, option, the other option changes. So this is where certainly there is some thought to be put into whether this is you know, good or bad for customers and where competition policy will have a role to play. But uh, this is a type of, but definitely security is a different object. And self, you can self-regulate yourself, but poorly, you don't invest enough and there's still a risk. And therefore, you know, there is a scope for regulation even if you have some safe regulation. But that's basically um, all I have to say at this point. Yeah, thank you very much, it was uh, very clear. Um, Adina, you spent some time referring to, um, uh, to network effects. And uh, you also made the point about the European uh, platforms providing some statistics. Um, what should be our objectives? Do we need European platforms or we need platforms, no matter from where they are coming off from, that um, boost European economy? Very general question. I welcome uh, contributions from everyone. Um, well, I think the... The purpose is growth, uh, benefit of consumers, so anything can, can contribute. Actually, while, um, while um, you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, I was giving examples of the big platforms, uh, and unfortunately, Europe has not been able so far to produce big international uh, platforms. But on the other hand, if I think of uh, national Europe, of course, is more fragmented than the US or China itself as a big country. It's more fragmented and then probably because of consumers' preferences, some smaller platforms at the national level manage to emerge and they make consumers, I don't know if equally happy, but happy. I can give an example. I am from Romania and uh, the, Amazon, the Romanian Amazon is a Romanian... Um, uh, e-commerce uh, platform, it's called eMag, like eShop, and this is very, very, very successful in Romania. Everyone it, it managed to bring a lot of competition in the market that managed to uh, help small suppliers from all over Romania to be in the market. And this is a very good example, so I don't know whether, and also it's in uh, the, the interface with the Romanian customers is maybe uh, easier than Amazon, so I think they made it in Romania more than Amazon, also because Amazon was not present because of uh, this, um, maybe not enough scale, not enough uh, a network in Romania to distribute, I don't know exactly the facts, but I think, yeah, smaller networks, also contributed to growth, to the to, to satisfaction of consumers. So I wouldn't be able now, without further thinking, to compare what is better. And that, yeah. Thank you. And um, uh, when we are talking about networking effects that you mentioned, what is the importance of uh, the ability to multi-home between different platforms in defining whether we have the potential lock-in that Thomas mentioned or not? to go to both of you, yeah, Thomas, if you feel free to go, yeah. Yes, multi-homing is a, is a question of fact, obviously, uh, and then multi-homing can uh, happen on both sides. No? You can have uh, merchants, for instance, on a merchant platform, uh, 
going to different ones because they think uh, one platform is not enough and you have to go to many platforms in order to be able to sell uh, properly. On the other hand, you have the consumers who might want to focus on only one platform because they think this is the most uh, convenient one for them to buy. So you can have multi-homing on the on the uh, on the plat on the merchant side, in my example, and uh, single homing on the consumer side, or you can have it the other way around. Uh, so it's actually a very complex question to uh, get it, it right on the facts, uh, how much multi-homing there is. And, um, but generally, the more multi-homing there is, especially on the consumer side, the more competition you would expect um, on the platform side, obviously. Uh, and could you, uh, could I have also your comment about the dominant position and whether we should look also at platforms that have dominant position referring to the competitive practices you, ref uh, you, to you talked about? Yes, I think that definitely some practices, I mentioned the leveraging uh, practices, which we see in, in, in platform markets, uh, the dominant uh, platforms have an incentive to use the dominant position in one market in order to grow in another market, and that uh, sometimes not by very fair means, and uh, I've mentioned uh, one example where the Commission uh, took issue with that, uh, and that is an incentive that platforms have. I think it's not uh, that it's hard to deny that if you ever, if you already have an entrenched position in one market, uh, you might have, have an incentive uh, to uh, broaden uh, the scope of your ex of of your uh, businesses in, in into other markets. Uh, I think that we've seen in, in, in many platform uh, markets in the past, and that's something competition authorities need to be vigilant about. Thank you. Um, Siada, we talked um, uh, a lot about competition, but you also pointed out some other uh, critical points of uh, the DSM agenda related to the platforms. And uh, the, your final remark was about uh, whether and how regulations should be implemented. Um, so in, we had also with Patrick uh, an active discussion about privacy. So my question is that in terms of privacy, you see that uh, the European um, um, initiative uh, moved to the correct direction. Um, we had also some recent cases that probably uh, make this discussion very timely. And, uh, to, uh, and according to your personal opinion, do we need to go into regulation of platforms and what should be the basic principles? I'm actually going to fully agree with Thomas on this one where I think there's going to be a need for a combination of and I think that that's why I also gave the options because we, we, we talk about the two extremes. So self-regulation on the one hand and full regulation on the other but there is a middle way as well which is co-regulation. Um, where a lot of success has been has been seen, uh, where we see that together with the legislator and stakeholders, you come up with a pragmatic solution. That's something that shouldn't be snubbed as an option for the future. And I think we'll need to have a combination of, we've got the GDPR coming into play um, in May. We see that Europe is a front runner at a global uh, level on that. Uh, where you have a fundamental right there and um, the European institutions as a whole, European stakeholders um, worked very hard on the GDPR. Let's see how the rollout goes once it comes, uh, when, once it's transposed. I know that all the in, from an industry perspective, a lot of effort has been put into be GDPR compliant by the uh, 25th of May. So... Um, yeah, that, that's an area where I think regulation is a cornerstone. But what, what I think is more important, and I did mention the enforcement aspect as well, um, let's look at where we already have regulation in place that can be used 
for new business models. Just because you've got a new way of doing business doesn't mean that you need to have new regulation, therefore. You just need to be able to apply it properly. Um, similarly, um, I think that there will be aspects where you will need to have further regulation, but the one thing that I would caution, and that's something that, we're, that, that we've seen more of, and that's why I'm cautioning against it, is this idea of we're trying to make headlines in the newspaper about somebody's dealing with terrorist content. So instead of um, giving the six months that we said we were going to have stakeholder dialogue, we're going to come up with regulations three months ahead of time because it addresses a political will. That, I think, is where we're going wrong because then we're actually not looking at the problems anymore, but we're addressing a political concern of a politician somewhere in a member state, probably a big member state. Thank you. Please, Hadina. Yeah, sorry, thank you for... Uh, I would like to... I don't have the answer to this question, but I would like to add to the debate on regulation and what the issues are. I think the, an important question is the split of responsibilities between the European Commission and the member states. I cannot help but uh, always giving the example of Uber. Um, Uber, the entry of Uber in, in Europe has brought a lot of competition in, a, in an industry that has been very, very concentrated. But we are struggling for years to find a place of Uber. So we, we keep, member states still have a lot of discretion in, in um, in going against Uber, uh, but mainly by responding to the pressure from incumbents instead of defining clearly. I think the European Commission would be better placed to define clearly the market failures that have to be addressed through regulations. If this is left to the discretion of the member states, because some courts have decided that Uber is a transport rather than a digital service, I think we are in the danger that uh, these big platforms, regulation will go all over the places, will not be focused on market failures, or maybe even some social objective, but clearly defined, but rather re respond to some political pressures that are very different in, the, in a fragmented Europe, in very different member states. Of course, uh, governments should have discretion to some extent, but this creates the risk that these big platforms that are present uh, everywhere are not, um, are not uh, sufficiently protected. And it is a good point to uh, mention also that we talk about regulation, but um, when we have uh, uh, these digital uh, platforms entering uh, to traditional sectors that they are incumbent there, how this regulation is set and the political pressure argument, I think, is very valid uh, to, uh, with this respect. Um, before I open the floor for questions, is there any additional comment, remark, comment from the one to the other that you would like to address? Yes, I think yeah. one elephant in the room that I didn't mention, that's why I just have to qu quickly mention it, is the e-commerce directive, um, which has been the framework for um, online operations for such a long time. And through some of the initiatives, like the copyright directive, for example, um, have, has come has been questioned. And I think that that, going back to my point on enforcement, I think that one thing that we need to look at is what is the value of the current uh, legislative pieces that we already have? Do we need to hack away at those um, to, to, to seem like we're innovative in our regulation? 
Probably not. Probably we can build on it as opposed to reopening things that um, shouldn't be reopened, such as the e-commerce directive as a framework. I'm not saying that there aren't particular areas that might need addressing, but the approach to which we do that, um, let's just be very cautious as, as to what we're actually going to achieve if we do, uh, if we do attack a framework like that. And of course, the enforcement is a big issue, that, an objective that we should have in mind. Any other comments? So let me open the floor for questions. Uh, please uh, raise your hand, identify yourself. We go to Adonio, firstly. Works, yes. Uh, thank you very much. It has been a very interesting debate, uh, and uh, that perhaps opens uh, the floor to many other questions. I have two. Um, one related to the comment made by Adina uh, relating to Spotify. Um, I don't have the answer, but my, my point is the following. Perhaps Spotify is where it is today because they were able to launch uh, an IPO recently, uh, unfortunately not in Europe, but in the States. So my question um, and, and, and uh, and um, uh, yeah, my question is, are we short of big platforms in Europe because we don't have a large enough market, uh, market capital markets or uh, capital union market? I mean, capital market union was perhaps um, uh, focusing on this ability to finance uh, uh, all over Europe um, initiatives like, like Spotify. So this is a point, uh, the link between size, uh, role, and the capacity of the, of the market. And my second uh, comment uh, slash question uh, relates to what Saida and Thomas uh, mentioned before, which I can summarize in the way of all tools to analyze, uh, um, to analyze uh, market dominance um, in, today's, in today's market. Um, I understand that DigiComp basically focuses on two, on two main variables, uh, impact on price to the consumer and market share. But uh, having the fact that in some cases platforms are in theoretically free to the consumer, one of the, these two key uh, components is, is missed. Um, and perhaps um, the, in the case in Germany with uh, Facebook, no, not with Facebook, with, uh, yeah, with Facebook, I think, where basically they are analyzing the, the concentration of market share, making use of free uh, data, perhaps could be opening a new venue uh, to Digicomp. Thank you. Collect uh, one, two more questions. Maria has a question. Yes. Much. I, am, I am fascinated by this, uh, this idea of uh, uh, co-regulation and I think it's fascinating because it does appreciate the fact that there are both benefits to some aspects of the economy being self-regulated and some aspects of the economy better left to the regulators. Uh, but in an environment uh, where you are ridden by very big uncertainties, both on the risks that arise from a digital economy as well as the economic impact of digital economy, what side of this trade-off should we be leaning off ex ante? Should be more risk averse of go for the regulation at the cost of over-regulating? Or should we allow self-regulation to take over also for allowing us to learn about the dangers and the risks that arise? 
Thank you. And one uh, more question before we go. Ah, so we are already there, and this next round will go here. Um, yeah, my question is about the single market more broadly. So basically, 25 years ago, when we were speaking about uh, uh, the single market uh, uh, and uh, with the uh, Maastricht Treaty, um, we promised uh, to the um, we, I mean, uh, the promise was made uh, to the European citizens that the prices uh, would be lower uh, across Europe and that the prices would be the same. Um, what we have seen since then is that uh, prices are not converging and, uh, for instance, uh, Belgian consumers uh, still pay 13% more for their uh, usual expenses uh, for fast-moving consumer goods in Belgium than in the neighboring countries. Obviously, um, the uh, platforms are an opportunity from that perspective because basically if Belgian consumers were able to shop across the border, uh, this would uh, make a kind of pressure also on the physical shops. But that's not exactly what we see either because, you know, uh, mostly uh, Belgian consumers, for plenty of reasons, are redirected uh, to the local platforms. And these platforms tend to uh, uh, price uh, differently across Europe. And so the question is, uh, you know, will we... Uh, uh, finally uh, get to uh, converging prices across Europe, according to you? Thank you, Alexis. Uh, we know you, but for the audience, could you identify yourself also? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Alexis Walkers, Chief Economist of the Belgian Competition Authority. And let's take one final question here before we go to the answers. Good morning, Matthew Newman from MLEX. Question about the uh, statements on platforms and big data. And I was interested in the uh, ongoing review of Apple and Shazam. This is a case involving the uh, music identification service. So it raises some of the issues uh, that were seen before, like with Microsoft uh, LinkedIn, with Microsoft Skype. Um, I'm just wondering, um, when is too big a problem? Um, obviously, um, Apple has a nice uh, walled garden, and uh, Shazam is, is probably the leader in this uh, music identification service. Um, but the market shares are quite small for, for both uh, like Apple is small in, in mobile phones and but, uh, relatively big in on downloading um, music. Um, so the question for Thomas actually is, um, what is the line of uh, a problem uh, with, with the combination of these two uh, markets? Um, and I just want to note that um, Bayouk, the uh, consumer group, uh, has... Uh, concerns about this because there's a, potentially a problem of interoperability. Let's say if you download um, Shazam, will, will that automatically push you towards Apple and then the other uh, uh, competitors, let's say Spotify, would be um, forced out of the market or denied uh, uh, market opportunities. Thank you very much. Uh, so let's go to the responses. Thomas, you want to start here? Yeah. 
Yes, on the, on the last one, obviously, I can't comment on, on the ongoing uh, case, but more generally, uh, what kind of things are we looking into and that you've already seen in, in, in other uh, investigations uh, when it comes to data markets? Is there a barrier to entry? Do data accumulations uh, hinder other companies from entering uh, the market? What kind of data are actually gathered? Uh, are they replaceable, substitutable? Is there an exclusive data use? And all of this will play into the mix. And then when you assess uh, when you a transaction, like in this case, you have to then e evaluate uh, whether this is an advantage that uh, the entity will have that um, stems from, from the merger in, in, in this case. Uh, but generally, these are the parameters that one would take into account. I can't obviously comment on the on the specific one. And now that I have the micro, probably the answer to uh, your question is, uh, you had the question, what about our tools? Are our tools um, adapted uh, to the market conditions? I would say yes, because in, in many cases, we have already moved away from this focus on price. Uh, the Google uh, case is a very good example, where the search service basically is for free, and we still define the market on the basis of a service that doesn't cost anything to the, uh, to the consumer. Uh, and obviously, the analysis goes much beyond market share. You look into the barriers to entry, Google again was a good example where we used into the data. We looked into the data that Google was accumulating from all the searches and whether this was actually giving it an advantage over its uh, competitors. Whether any other search engine could actually uh, match that. Uh, so we're beyond. Uh, I think that we look into whether there's impact on choices and innovation. What data? What kind of uh, role the data play in, in terms of barriers to entry and, and market uh, definition? I think most of the competition authorities around the world have actually moved away in. in in these markets from a pure focus on market shares uh, and pricing. Most of the trend goes towards a much broader analysis uh, of different uh, issues in, this, in these digital markets. Um, yes, then the pricing, uh, the single market issue. Uh, I, I think the promise was not prices will be the same all over the place. Uh, I think the promise was choice will be the same all over the place. Uh, and, and that, uh, I think, we, we are getting towards uh, with the geo-blocking regulation, for instance, uh, that was adopted and will enter into force uh, in December this year. Belgian consumers, in your example, will be able to at least uh, see and to also uh, buy um, outside uh, Belgium. The only thing that they won't be able to do for goods is they will have to arrange the shipment uh, for themselves, but there's many intermediate companies who will do that for them, uh, and you see that uh, already working. So this is a step in, in, in that direction. So if choices increased, uh, then prices might follow, but I think the aim cannot be to level the prices uh, throughout uh, the European Union, but at least to give people choice, and if they want to shop around and go through the hustle of going to, uh, I don't know, a Bulgarian <laughs> website, uh, they should be able to do it. Thank you, Thomas. Siada. Uh, um, yes, I just want to address the point about the free services for a second. Um, you mentioned free services, and the issue of data's account performance has come up in different contexts, not only uh, from a competition, um, law perspective, but also if you look at the um, rules for uh, the supply of digital content, the contract rules for the supply of digital content, that aspect has come up. And if you would like to read uh, not an industry position, but an interesting position on the aspect, the European Data Protection Supervisor actually um, issued an opinion on that to state that um, considering data as a counterperformance could be counterproductive uh, as in, in the larger scale, 
because um, you're you're putting a quantifiable value on the, on data, which would limit actually how you can. Uh, also, it would it would have repercussions on the consumer as well in terms of um, using it as a commodity um, in a broader sense. So that would definitely be something I would revert you to. With regards to your point on the pricing, again, I would refer, like Thomas did, to the geoblocking proposal, where the availability. The availability of the services and the goods will be available to the Belgian consumer. Now, whether the Belgian consumer is aware of that fact, that would be the next step to make sure that the Belgian consumer is aware that they can go beyond their um, national market to go for those different options. But the geoblocking proposal is an example where that has been made available um, to allow for some form of fairness there. Um, I think to uh, Maria's point on the ex-ante positioning right now uh, from a regulatory framework where we're going, I think that's exactly the question. Are we willing to take a risk to figure it out through the possibility, the range of tools that we have in terms of regulation, co-regulation and self-regulation and a combination thereof? Or are we going to revert to what we're most comfortable with which is to try and come up with regulation to the reality of today with the understanding that we've got a certain implementation time and that it might not actually be effective by the time it hits the ground. And I think that's the question that European regulators face um, today. Very often, sadly, I still find the answer, even when you're at later stages of uh, the legislative process, that a lot of the detail is left to say, well, it's too complicated to deal with when we're getting the legislation off the ground, so we're going to leave it to litigation. That, I think, is a very concerning trend that we're seeing more and more of, coming from member state representatives when they're discussing it at council, coming from the European Parliament, and even from the Commission. And leaving too much uncertainty there will only create a divergence and fragmentation in terms of implementation of the legislation we have. Adina, you want to address also, yeah. Uh, to start with the question of Spotify, I'm not an expert on Spotify, but to the, the little I know about capital markets in Europe, I definitely think that they are less developed than in the US. Venture capitalists um, are not so common uh, way of financing in Europe, but um, I don't think uh, Spotify made it in the US just because of this reason. I think they had an original idea, and I think they managed to play with this two-part tariff uh, um, concept because Apple was charging, they have a different business model, Apple was charging, it was a variable cost, variable price for each uh, item and they came with a fixed price and then uh, leaving everything uh, consumers to use as much as they want. So I think it's an original idea, original business models, so that's why they made it and of course financing uh, was e easier I think in the US than here. Um, and just one comment to the regulation, self-regulation. Uh, my opinion, I very much agree with Ciara that it's not uh, to go either to the extreme, to either of the extreme. You are asking which way to go. I don't think uh, relying on self-regulation is a risk. I think we should observe what, where we are now. If some self-regulation works to some extent, then regulation should come uh, to like a top-down regulation should come to complement what is still needed to correct market failures. I come back to my first point that regulation should be there where there are market failures. And again, coming back to the example of Uber, I think in the example of apps, taxi apps, they managed to the self-regulation and the transparency that 
apps brought into the market managed to uh, make f uh, past reasons for regulation such as asymmetries of information between passengers and, and um, drivers to eliminate those asymmetries of information so there is one reason less to regulate. Self-regulation works there, transparency ensures uh, customers knowing whom they are going with. Also this uh, rating system, to so the extent that it works and is well designed, provides a lot of information about uh, each driver. So to that extent, I think self-regulation made a step forward and then maybe there is less room for regulation. Again, we have to identify what the problems are. Are there some problems eliminated through self-regulation? Then regulation should be limited to maybe uh, labor laws or other well-defined issues. So there must there may be a there must be a combination. I think it's not a risk to rely. It's just observing what self-regulation can do already in the market. Uh, yeah. So um, I address Maria's comment on um, what to do. And honestly, if we are honest, you know, we are not very good at um, predicting the future, especially in very complex environments. And, and uh, however, on this issue of uh, when should you intervene as a regulator, uh, there are some, some, some insights from, from, again, the academic literature. And I'm seeking in particular this paper by Siegel and Winston. They look at industries where you have a lot of innovation, potentially. And, and the idea is that incumbents may get, you know, um, a dominant position very quickly. And the question is whether this dominant position will prevent entry by small incumbents. And then antitrust may step in to rebalance the market, you know, and to create better incentives for the interest. But obviously, when you do that, you may depress the incentives for the incumbent. And there is something relatively robust coming out of this work. You know, you have traders, but what is coming very um, relatively robustly is that in worlds where innovation is very fast and important, then this is when antitrust is very costly. Okay, so now the question is what, how do you identify very innovative and fast? So the question will be what is the innovation that platform brings and can you think of a Spotify as a very innovative firm, Facebook as a very innovative firm or whatever. But this provides at least some type of very simple benchmark to say, when stepping in in this type of complex environments will be costly for society because you change incentives of the big guys and the small guys, uh, or when it is, it is good. So I think that's the uh, thing. On the question of price and, and regulation, I, I like actually a lot this idea of local markets versus global markets. And clearly, you know, you could have convergence very easily if you have a dominant platform, right? They will set one price, but probably you'll have other effects. Um, and as we know, the, the, as we know the, the difference in prices is something that you get very naturally from this type of, um, of model when consumers search for products. Because obviously, the, the intensity of search will depend on what they expect to get. And, and therefore, you know, they may stop searching very quickly if they, if they have some anticipation about the distribution of prices. So I don't know to resolve that, and I don't have the answer to why European platforms are smaller than, than, um, than, than, than what you see in the, in the US. It's probably because there is a trade-off between catering to local taste versus having a global product, which you observe in other industries also. So is that good, is that bad? Uh, it's not clear, but uh, you may have more of this trade-off in Europe than in, in, uh, in the big platforms in the US. So that's all I have.
Thank you, Patrick. Uh, I mean, uh, when, uh, let me go back to the digital single market uh, strategy when it was announced in 2015. A striking observation is, was that uh, while e-commerce grows in a, a rate of 22%, uh, which is quite high, uh, cross-border trade is much lower than domestic trade uh, online. Uh, so probably um, it is, uh, we could also see uh, as a part of the digital single market agenda the growth of European firms by uh, re uh, reducing the barriers for them to trade uh, cross-border and in this way uh, increase the scope and the demand that they can serve. Um, so any other final remark because we are about to conclude uh, from the speakers, from the panelists? Oh, sorry, there was a question there. One final question then. Hello, uh, my name is Jamie Patel. I work for LVMH. Maybe two questions, if I could, very quickly. Um, one, I, I think what we're seeing t today, which is different from in the past, where you have the dominant firms uh, with an ability to buy up any competitive uh, threats. Uh, we've seen that with uh, potentially with, with WhatsApp. We've seen that with a lot of small firms being bought up by the big, by the big tech platforms. And there's a question to Thomas: Do you think the current merger rules are strong enough to be able to look at the anti-competitive? practices of, of um, buyouts by, from big companies but just of small ones. And then the second question, uh, question is about regulation, this tension between self-regulation and regulations. I, all I can say is that from our point of view, the self-regulatory initiative that was, has been led by the Commission since 2011 has only seen a doubling in the amount of counterfeit that's available to European consumers. So I would, don't think that's a really a success story. Um, and I think if you're talking about trying to apply the current rules, um, the rules around offline marketplaces and their responsibility when it comes to illegal goods has been set very clearly by the ECJ ruling on Tommy Hilfiger. So why don't we just apply that? If, if, the, if the current rules are good enough, why don't we apply those, those rules to online marketplaces? It's actually the online marketplaces that are calling for themselves to be treated specially and differently. Um, so I think it's, it's, it, we need to pick one or the other. Thank you. Please. Very quickly on the merger rules, I think we're catching uh, the ones that we should catch. Um, we haven't yet spotted any big uh, hole in, 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 in the merger rules. I mean, there's been experiments in Germany and Austria with different thresholds, uh, but I don't think they lead to any different results in the end. So we're, getting, uh, we're catching the fish that we should, uh, should be catching in, in the net. I think there's a, that's a fact for the time being. And then on, on, on the rules, uh, I think what I was trying to say that there might be specific specificities of uh, online markets uh, that might uh, warrant a different uh, set of rules because of the, the data advantage, the network advantage, what you don't see in, in, in many offline markets. So if there, and that's a matter of fact, if you can identify these specificities, I think then it's not a big deal uh, to say that for these specific markets there needs to be a different uh, approach. Um, to your point on counterfeit goods, that there are double the amount of counterfeit goods on the market, that's one thing, but uh, that doesn't necessarily have a direct impact on whether the, for example, the Memorandum of Understanding on Counterfeit Goods is a success, because there it's, it's how much action is being taken and how, how would the situation have been had that action not been taken. And the, also the goodwill that's shown between the different stakeholders throughout the value chain. We, there are debates about the um, follow the money approach. 
uh, ensuring security at the source and across the value chain. These are all big developments. I, I get your concern, and definitely from LVMH's point of view, the fact that counterfeit is uh, readily available is something that needs to be addressed. But it will only be addressed when all the stakeholders actually work together on this. And I think that that's where their memorandum of understanding is showing success in ways and steps forward. Thank you. Any final comment? Uh, so uh, we are uh, just uh, out of time. So we'll stop here the first session. We'll be back uh, on uh, 10.45 for the second. We have coffee uh, uh, break now. The second session is uh, on DSM initiatives. Uh, achievements and prospects. Uh, so uh, before that, uh, let me invite you to welcome uh, our guest today that did such a great uh, job to describe us uh, the online platforms environment. <laughs>